You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Here, good morning. Um, my name is Tim Irick. For you that don't know me, I'm uh, one of the elders and pastors here at Fort Myers, so it's my pleasure to talk to you today. We've been doing this Advent series on um, waiting in, in, in different things, waiting in hope last week. We're going to talk about waiting in love today. Next week's waiting in joy. Question for you. I know all my, uh, I know all my friends in the agricultural world will know what this is. What is this? It's a hitch. What's this? A what? Cotter pin. Okay. We call it a linchpin or cotter pin. The linchpin has one purpose to secure this hitch and not let it get out. It all depends on this. And we're going to learn today that the linchpin of the gospel, the linchpin of the church, is the love of God. Because God is love. And so it's my honor, I love when Bill gives me certain topics like this one, it's my honor to walk us and teach us through, uh, through waiting on God in love. And I'm going to do this in a couple of ways. I'm going to walk our way through uh, God's redemptive history in three texts or three stories that teach us how, how to wait upon God in love. We're going to look at uh, Isaiah 54 and look at what is the object of our waiting what are we waiting on? We're going to look at Luke chapter 1 uh, and look at the waiting of a woman when God speaks to a woman. And then finally, we're going to look at uh, how the Holy Spirit equips us to wait in love for Christ's return. And we're going to look at 1 John chapter 4 in that. But before we look at these three stories or these three texts, I want to take a little time to do a short, a very, very short study and, and define what the love of God is. Because we can't sit there and say, what are we waiting on or waiting on, on, on love if we don't really know what biblical love looks like. Um, so I'm going to walk us through a couple of texts and draw out, again, a very short definition because if I was going to talk about God's love and teach on God's love, I'd probably do it over like 10 weeks. Um, but I'm, I'm going to get five minutes, okay? It's John chapter 14, verses 28 to 31 say this, says this, You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, <clears throat> excuse me, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. So we see in this, this verse how Jesus loves his Father. He says, one of the ways that I love my Father is I do what he asks me to do. I do what he commands me to do. Later on in his prayer in the garden in chapter 17 of John, Jesus says this, 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. So we see that God tells us all through the Old Testament, I share my glory with no one. And then Jesus says, Father, you've given me these men. I want to come back to you. I want them to see my glory, the glory you, God, gave me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. So what we see in this relationship between God the Father and God the Son is an eternal love. There's never been a time that God the Father did not love God the Son. There's never been a time that God the Son did not love God the Father. And then we add the Holy Spirit in there. If we look at some of this, there's commands. You commanded me to do. I came and did what you asked me to do. I die. I'm going to die for their sins tomorrow. And I'm doing this because you love me. And we hear in 14, and I'm going to do it because I love you. So if you look at love, if you look at godly, eternal, holy love, it's eternal. It's everlasting. There's never been a time that God the Father has not loved God the Son. It's directional. Jesus has love to the Father. And the Father has love back to his Son. It's intentional. You sent me here to do something and you commanded me to do it and I'm doing it because I love you. I'm not, I'm not doing what you commanded me out of obligation. I'm doing what I love for that what you command me to do, God, because I love you, Father. It's intentional and it's willful. God the Father just wills to love his Son. And God the Son just wills to love his Father. We need a contrast with this with some of the verses we're going to look at because I think we get mixed up. God says that he is love. God says at times that I get angry. God is not anger. God gets anger. He gets angry, but he is not angry. The essence of God is not anger. The essence of God makes up, the biggest part of God's essence is made up by two things. First and foremost, his holiness. He is so other than us. For eternity, he has lived outside of his creation. Always. And out of that holiness, that essence is, the next essence is love. God's essence is love. That's what he is. Okay? God's wrath is temporary. God's anger is temporary. God's love is his essence. God is love. God is not anger. He gets angry, but he's not anger. Remember, God is love. And that definition I'm going to use over and over and over again as I go through these three stories, okay? We'll keep coming back and looking at his intentionality, his everlastingness, his directional love. First story. I think the text will come up on the screen. If not, go to your Bible or go to your, um, your phone with your Bible on it. We're going to look at Isaiah. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 through 10. Okay? So Isaiah 54, I'm going to start in verse 5. 
And I'm going to go to verse 10. This is what the word of God says. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Verse 6. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off. Says your God. Get this. For a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. Says the Lord your Redeemer. Verse 9. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore to the waters of Noah... There should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. Verse 10, for the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The first thing I want to look at is where this sits in, in, in Isaiah. Isaiah is an interesting book. Uh, if you've never read it, uh, probably ought to. Um, if you're studying it, if you've never studied it, we have a Bible study here that's doing it. I've gone through Isaiah three or four times, one-on-one with several people. The first thing you always notice about Isaiah is God is mad. He's a mad God. He has a right to be angry. His people who he has loved... Don't trust him. They're, they're hedging their bets. They're, they're seeing Assyria come down and conquer parts of them, and they're saying, if, God, if our God is so strong, why is Assyria coming down here? Why is, why are, is Egypt going to come later on? And why is this guy, Darius, going to come and take us over? They see all that and go, how, if, God, if our God is all-powerful, how does this happen to us? And so they actually blended their theology. They kept one foot in the God of the universe, and put one foot into idols. And they actually thought that was okay. And so throughout most of the book, that's what you see. You see God pronouncing judgment upon the people of Israel. But every now and then, we were talking about this this morning, every now and then you get into this and go, wow, you know, this is chapter number three, and it's still just God being angry. Then all of a sudden he gives you these nice little um, things to be joyful over. There's a shoot that will come out of Jesse. Uh, chapter 9, there's this prince, this Emmanuel. 53, 54, and 55 are beautiful texts. It's the linchpin. 53 is what we call the suffering servant. We see Jesus, just an ordinary man. And we see that God the Father is going to smite him. That the Son who loves the Father is going to pay for my inequities. And the Father that loves the Son is going to put his wrath on God the Son for my inequities. 53, verse, chapter 53 is all about that. And then 54 comes in. If you notice in my Bible, it's a lousy chapter breaks. I actually have 53, 54, and 55 marked out. Uh, because they're really, really bad chapter breaks. It's one continuous thought. 
54 starts out after 53, after this, that this, he's going to be stricken for my transgressions. I'm going to crush him. He's going to die. He's going to be rewarded. 54, what we just read, starts out, seeing O barren one who did not bear it. It, it comes out joyfully. So 53 is this really hard teaching. 54 is this great joyful um, teaching of a wife that's been deserted, a wife that's gone astray. And I'm only going to be angry momentarily for you. And I'm going to come back with a steadfast love for you. The Hebrew word used in 8 and 10 is very interesting. Um, we look at verse 8 where it says, In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. In verse 10 we see the same thing. Uh, the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So we see a word used, and we try in the English to make one word out of it, but the Jewish word is very complex. It's a very complex word, and it's really not a word to describe a single thing. It's a word to describe a concept. And the concept is the love of God. And in, in, the, in, in the Jewish Looking at this, it's, it's, a, it's a love of God that's totally set apart. It's used most of the time to God only. You look through the Psalms, it's used quite a few times, and it's talking about the type of love that God is. And so we try to take a word that when a Hebrew heard it, he thought of the concept of who a holy, self-existing love of God is, and we try to get it down to one word when we put it in the English. And so we come up with things like loving kindness or everlasting love. And that's really close, probably not good enough. So really what that word designates is a passionate kindness, a loyalty toward another, normally of a superior to an inferior. Well, I think I'm pretty inferior to God. So God in, 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 in Isaiah saying, here's the type of love that I have for you my creatures. It's a passionate love. More passionate than you can ever imagine. It's a loyal love. I will never not love you. And I am God, self-existing, way other than you, but this is the type of love that I'm going to put on you. He then couples that with a Hebrew word for compassion. And that word is the love rooted in a natural bond. Think about that for a moment. Just take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God created man and woman. So we see that the love that we're waiting upon, the type of love that God is, is a passionate kindness beyond description that is put on us through, that gives that is a loyal love. Once he puts his love upon me, he does not take it away. And it is a love to somebody that's far superior than I am. More superior than I can even comprehend. And he just chooses to love. And then he puts his compassion all the way back to the natural bond that he has with us because he created us. 
You can't have a more natural bond than that. And so that's the love of God that we see in Hebrews. 55, so we got 53 tells me I'm in trouble and somebody else is going to pay for me. 54 gives a joyous how God is going to accomplish that through this undescribable, very unique love. 55 says, I'm going to do this because I have an everlasting covenant with the house of David. So that's the first story. We, we get a picture of what this love looks like. Then the second story comes a bit later. It comes around the first century Palestine. And it comes to um, and into a place where God has not spoke to his people in 400 years. So let me take you a little bit back in history. So the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra talks about the people coming back to Jerusalem, rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple. We hear that again in, in places like uh, Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi. We get the temple is completed. Their prophecies are talking about a return of Christ, foreshadows of a Messiah. So by the, we're, we're 400 years away from the birth of Christ, and God stops speaking. And as before he starts speaking, what the Jewish nation did goes, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. This promise that God made, this promise in 53, that's going to bring this type of love in 54 and fulfill David's covenant in 55. That's coming. It's coming really quickly, and, and they're hyper-vigilant on it. And then God stops speaking for 400 years. No more prophets. A lot of things happened in that 400 years, though. The Greeks came in and took over uh, Judea. They got influenced by Greek thought. And just like they always did... They took Greek philosophy and mixed it with, with uh, the one true God and made their own little thing out there. And God didn't come correct them, so they kind of just kept doing that. They had, uh, but that didn't last very long because Alexander the Great didn't live very long. How long did Alexander the Great live? He died actually very young, about 32 years old. And, there's a, and what happens when you have a great big leader like that and he has all these countries that he that he's the leader of, when he dies like that, there's a vacuum. And there's a vacuum in the Greek army. And it's separated into two different people. It's separated into one, one general called uh, the Ptolemies and another general called the Sulacleides. And the Ptolemies actually ran Egypt. And they came in and out of uh, Judea causing problems. The other one actually came into the temple and defiled the altar during this 400 years of silence. If you read Daniel, chapter 8 through 12, they talk about abomination of desolation. That's what this general did. He came in during that 400 years of silence and defiled the altar in the temple, which caused a big revolt by a family called the Maccabeans. And they kind of kicked them out for a while, and they ran, ran it for a little while. So you have this 400 years that God's not speaking, but there's a lot going on. And the Jewish people influenced. So it ends with the Jewish people going, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And a hundred years goes by and the Messiah doesn't come. But life gets really bad on them because they don't have any kings and they're ruled by Greek. And the thought still is the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And then another hundred years go by, no Messiah. And you got these two generals and their families and their, their, their generations of leaders. And they're not nice. They're defiling the temple and their Judea, again, is under oppression. 
in even a more heightened realization, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, still doesn't come. In another 300 years now, again, in 300, then the Romans come, and life gets really bad under the Romans, and, and the Messiah still hasn't come, but there's a heightened urgency for the Messiah to come. Internally, within the Hebrew religion, and within the Jewish religion, something else happens. Pharisees and Sadducees. You won't find Pharisees and Sadducees in the Old Testament. The Pharisees and the Sadducees did not come about until this 400 years of silence. The Pharisees were legalistic and very influential. The Sadducees controlled the priesthood. And they were very, very close to the Roman government. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. And then you had this other group that we call teachers of the law, and they were very legalistic. So what you had is you had oppression from the secular world on the Jewish people. You also had oppression within from the two power struggles that were going on within the Jewish faith between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So at the time of Christ, you had this real expectation of the Messiah's got to come because God promised us 400 years ago or 500 years ago, or if, the, if, if you really understood your scripture, clear back to Moses and Abraham, he promised something here and it can't get much worse than it is. When's it coming? And then God speaks. But he doesn't speak through a prophet. He speaks through an angel. And he first speaks to a priest who didn't listen very well. And he asked a question. And the question he asked when, the, when God spoke first time in 400 years that this is what's going to happen, what does he ask that angel? Can you tell me with certainty how that's going to happen? And what did the angel do? Guess what? You're not going to speak for a long, long time. You're a teacher of Israel, a priest of the nation. And I just told you something that you've been waiting on for a thousand plus years, and you want to know with certainty, and I'm a messenger from, from the, the, the great high God? Great. Then he comes to a very young woman, and he speaks to her. He tells her the same thing. She asks a question. He gives her an answer, and then she sings. And what I want to do is use Mary the mother of Jesus, as my next example of waiting upon God in love. Because if we look at Mary's answer, it is all about her love for her God. So turn to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to kind of read through a long passage and I'll kind of unpack it as we go, okay? I'm going to start in verse 26. In the six, everybody there? Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. I'll get back to that word favored here in a minute. Um, he came to her and said, Greeting, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And I'll talk about the word with there in the Greek here in a minute too. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in, in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. What's the word Jesus mean? God is my salvation. So Mary hears this word because Mary actually understands her Old Testament really well. I'll get to that in a minute. And she hears that, and I think the minute the troubleness of her, and she hears this, now she's saying, oh, Isaiah 54 is coming around. The prophecies of Jeremiah are coming around. What I've waited for, what I've loved, what, I've, what I know that my God, my God is this God of passionate loyalty, and he's speaking. Who? but he's speaking to me? I mean, that's why she's troubled, right? I mean, she's expecting, like most of Israel, this mighty king being, that being, being born into royalty that's going to be a warrior king. And she's going, well, how is all this going to happen? I'm a virgin. How is it going to happen? Right? And so we look at that word that says God is favored. In the Greek, that word actually connotes both. It, it, it means both love and grace. So he's, God sees in her Something that is deserving of his love and his grace. You will be the mother of my son incarnate. The word with means fellowship with her. And a lot of time it's a fellowship of something more superior than less. So again, we see what, he, what Isaiah prophesies now coming to her. And she gets all this. And her understanding, she, she's putting things together, and I'll, I'll show you that in a minute. Look at the question she's at, she asks. Uh, pick it up in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. She's hearing all this. She goes, up. Oh, I remember the covenant of David. And it will, and will reign in the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And here's her only question. She's not asking about certainty. She just understands God's biology. But I'm a virgin. How's this going to happen? Just a simple question of, I believe you, but being a virgin, how am I going to do this? And, the, and, and we know that the question was honored because the angel answers it, and there's no punishment. So we know where her heart is. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And listen to Mary's response. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If we truly understand that definition that I gave of love, what we looked at in uh, Isaiah, boy, we would love each other a lot differently sometimes when we love each other today. Mary got it. She goes, I'm your servant. And I know that you love your servants. 
and I know you came to me and asked me to do this, and that a loving father would never ask me to do something that loves me as this, that would harm me, or that I wouldn't want. And I know we, we, we can be assured that's the way she's thinking, because after she meets Elizabeth, she breaks into song. And the song of Mary is an amazing song. This young lady knew her old testament she knew her god i'm not going to read the whole thing i'll let you go read it home it starts out like the song of hannah and samuel it's got a lot of the same um, um, topics and thought as hannah's song and so she knows what to emulate she knows she knows what it's like to sing out in praise to god and then the rest of it actually has allusions to Psalms 30, Psalms 34, and Psalms 138. And I'll let you guys go home and read those. She knew her Old Testament. She knew that this God who promised that I will never let my anger come again, that there's going to be this servant that's going to come and pay for my sins. She knew about that, and she waited upon that with love. I don't, what she didn't know, and probably why she was troubled, is I'm going to be the one. But when that truth hit her, when reality set in, she sang. She sang a love song to her God. We ought to all sit there and be amazed. So now I'm going to convict you. Because when you teach from God's word, you've got to get conviction. Everyone sitting here today that has been saved by God's grace is equipped to love in this manner. And not only we are equipped to love in this manner, we are commanded to love in this manner the same way that Jesus loved the Father that commanded him. We don't like to use that word because, number one, I know what some people may be saying right now. Oh, it's work-based theology. That's not what I'm saying. Oh, I've got to do something, please, God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm going back to my very first two verses and defining it. Remember what Jesus said in 14. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. He did what the Father asked him to do because he loved the Father. And in that love affair, he knows my father would never ask me to do something that's not right and God glorifying and God exalting because that's not who God is. And in the second definition, it says, I, I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There is a trusting love in God the Son to say that God the Father has asked me to do this. I fully know what I'm going to. That's why God bled, Jesus bled sweat in the garden when he was swinging. He knew what he was facing, but he knew that God the Father loved God the Son. Turn to, so what are we equipped to do? Turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're still talking about that linchpin, right? This comes out. It all falls apart, but this is God's linchpin. God has a hand on this linchpin. This is God's love. It never goes anywhere. This is the most eternal, everlasting, secure linchpin ever 
put forth. Because I didn't create it. It's not created by man. It's created by an eternal God. John chapter, 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 10. Let's talk a little bit about the context of 1 John first. John is probably writing to the, seven, the same churches in Asia Minor that the book of Revelation, the letter, that's a letter. Revelation is a letter to the seven churches. This letter was probably written to those, seven, seven, those, those other seven churches. And in essence, what he's saying is he's teaching what sound doctrine is, what obedience looks like, what the basics of the faith are look like, and how all this is wrapped up in loving one another because God is love and he first loved us. And if I abide, if God abides in me, I will love others. Okay? That's the context. That's, that's the whole point he's trying to get across. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Here's how he has equipped us. Okay. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a sacrifice for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. Get that, church. If we don't love one another, we probably ought to go look in the mirror. Or maybe we ought to do what the Apostle Paul says, examine your faith, make sure you're in it. Here's why. No one has ever seen God. If we don't love one another, why can we love one another? God abides in us, get this, and his love is perfected or completed or matured in us. How do I know I'm maturing in Christ? How do I know you're maturing in Christ? Individually and in as body of Christ, our love for one another deepens. And if it's not deepening, we all need to ask ourselves, where are we? There's no other way. There's no other second. He's not giving us another way. He's saying there's one way that you know that you're in me and you love one another. What's that love look like? It is eternal because now I have the Holy Spirit in me. It's an eternal love. That love lasts into heaven. It's everlasting. It's directional. I love Miguel. It's intentional. It's not just something I feel like I have to do. It's something I want to do. And it's willful. My will is only free when it's in the created nature of God. It's not free any other way. And within the created nature that God had for me is to be able to understand his love for me and how he expresses that to me and me giving that to every one of the other one of his creation. So how are we equipped? We've been waiting for 2,022 years or thereabout, depending on how you want to measure time, right? 
Christ still hasn't come back. And he says, you wait on me one way. And I equipped you to do that because my love abides in you. Look what verse 13 is a horrible chapter break um, in the English translations. We love one another, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected, matured, completed in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. I can't love Miguel as Tim Eirich without the Holy Spirit in me. But when the Holy Spirit's in me, I can love Miguel the same way that Jesus loves the Father and the Father loves Jesus. I can love Miguel. I can be angry with you very, very momentarily, but I can't ever be angry with you long. Why? Because I love you. And God wasn't angry with his people. Why? Because he loved them. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. That's why discipling is so important. We're going into this time of Advent to remember the birth of Christ. Christ came. He lived a perfect life. His blood purchased the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That verse we just read a little early in, in chapter 14, what he's saying is going away. Why? And he, he's telling his apostles, it's good that I go away. He, he, sooner he gets in there and goes, it's really good that I'm going away because I'm going to send, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And it's a good thing that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit because he's going to dwell with you always. And the fruit of the Spirit, one of the things of the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. And it's not an earthly love. It's not a man love. It's a holy, self-existing God. God's love, the very essence of God's love, is a what we call theologically a communicable attribute. It's something that he gives us. I don't get his holiness. He reserves that for one. Him. I'm not self-existent. And as I get older, that becomes really apparent. When the knees get up and we know they're falling apart. We were sitting with uh, the Carltons the other night eating dinner. And Rick has got both shoulders and a, and a, 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 a fake uh, hip. We're not holy. <laughs> We're not self-existent. But the amazing thing about our God is he says, yeah, but my son will come. He'll pay your sin debt to him. And, 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 and the son will say, there's even a better thing that I'm going to send you, better than me sticking around. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. He will indwell in you and live with you forever. And you, the love that, that you've seen me, that I have the love for the Father, guess what? You'll have that love for your Father. And not only will you have that love for the Father, you'll have that love for each other. It should all give us a chill. i got goosebumps right now. It's an amazing truth. I'm going to sum it up in one verse when we're done. When we live this way, God rejoices. Turn to Isaiah 64, 62, and then we'll pray and have communion. Back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 62. Look at verse 5. goes back to kind of that marriage bridegroom um, analogy that God uses quite often in the Old Testament. Chapter 62, verse 5. For as a young man marries, and 
marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you, and the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Fort Myers, let us be a church that lives biblical love. Let us be so in love with God that we just sit there amazed that he would rejoice over this church going out into a community loving biblically, patiently, right? Long-suffering. We, a few weeks ago, we went through 1 Corinthians 13. I, again, I'm not going to read it today. I'll let you guys go home and read it. It's better if you read it than me read it to you because the Holy Spirit will help it stick. Um, but love is kind. It's patient. It does not hold wrongs. That's biblical, God-centric love. The world's love holds wrongs. That's not the love we're supposed to be. I got to check myself on that. All of us should check myself. Where am I living in this whole love word, right? The word love has a lot of connotations in America. But biblical love is I don't hold wrongs. I'm patient. One of the most important verses to me as, as a pastor, now I'm, I'm going down my, my one and only bunny trails. You guys ought to really be proud of me. Um, those that you know me, I can go down bunny trails. Uh, one of the verses that has impacted me, and I'm going to I'll just paraphrase it um, pretty much, is Paul's advice to Timothy in 2 Timothy, where he says, be able to teach, patiently endure an evil, loving that person with kindness, so that God may perhaps grant repentance. And what that tells me as an elder, but also tells every believer, is biblical love suffers. It endures evil. I don't give up. I've got a dear friend that has probably been one of the hardest believers to ever love in my life. And every time we get together over 22 years, he still says the same thing. Certain times I still don't believe you stuck with me. And I would look at him and smile and said, I didn't. <laughs> the Holy Spirit through me did. I want to go back to the one thing to clear up. I just thought about it and I was going to clear it afterwards. On when Jesus does what the Father commands, he doesn't do it out of obligation. He doesn't do it out of favor. And that's what we have to understand. He does it for one reason. He loves the Father. When God asks me to do something, he doesn't do it to obligate me. Because he loves me and I treasure him, me doing what he asks me to do in obedience is because I love him. It's that simple. And I'm empowered to do that. Let us pray. Holy Father, help us to wait upon your second coming of your son with, uh, with biblical love. Holy Spirit, I, I ask that you just fill us today with, uh, with this truth and that Fort Myers grows into a church that lives this. That's not it's not something we work at. It's something that we are. Just, just as you are love, let this church be that way, that we can go out into our community and our world, and that's what they see in us. Oh, Father, we thank you. We do this all only because of the sufficiency and supremacy of your Son in all things. Amen. We're having a communion all the way through Advent.
So a couple logistic things to uh, operational before we talk a little bit about uh, communion. We have set up two stations in the back um, and two stations in the front. If you would, maybe come to the middle, maybe halfway back, go to the back. This way, come front and then go back on sides. Last week, we kind of had a traffic jam up front, so we, we're making that easier. What I love about communion in that night, that Passover dinner night that Jesus had that he put the first communion in place, he said that I have eagerly desired to do this with you. What we're going to participate in is something that Jesus said, I eagerly, I lovingly desire to give this as a gift to you. And that's what this is. This is a remembrance of what he he did. His blood spilled for what we talked about today. It purchased the indwelling of the Holy Spirit so that we can love each other in a biblical, godly manner. His body was broke, so mine wouldn't be. So there's a few things that I, I always like to bring out. We always play uh, and, and some music to give, allow you to pray and go in front of God to prepare your heart. We are a church that wants to live sola scriptura, scripture only. And Paul is very clear about communion. If there is something in your heart that you just can't get rid of today and you're not worthy of communion, you are loved here just as we talked about today. You don't have to go up there. And nobody's going to wonder why. Why? Because we have the love of the Holy Spirit in us. It's biblical for you not to take it if you haven't got your heart right with God. And there's, that's, that's what God allows, right? And we will love you through that, okay? We're going to allow us to a little time in prayer. You and the Holy Spirit maybe can make it right if it's not. And then whenever you're ready, there's don't wait for anybody else. For the first time the person says that, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go have this, this gift that Jesus desired to give me, go up and, and, and do it, okay? Love you guys.